to the Roots to Change podcast. I am your host, Dunya, and I'm a systems change lead at the Children's Society. Our big ambition is a society built for all children. And to do this, we know that systemic change is needed. Systems change is not new, but what does it mean? And why does it seem to alienate some people? The Roots to Change podcast aims to make systems change more accessible. In this series, we'll be discussing systems change in youth work, and I'll be speaking to really inspiring and influential leaders about how we create change for young people. In this episode, I interview an incredible leader, Gino Parker, who was Programme Manager of the Disrupting Exploitation Programme at the Children's Society and is now a Centre Director at Bernardo's. Gino has worked in communities to ensure that diverse voices are heard and is passionate about empowering groups that are often excluded. In this episode, we talk about systems change as common sense youth work, Kimberly Crenshaw's movement around intersectionality and why cultural competency is crucial for systems change. And Gino gives some real life examples of how cultural competency has been applied to change the frames in which we view certain groups of young people. Here are some of my favourite quotes from this episode. Youth work is probably one of the only natural cultural competent professions because all our frames from everything that we touch around us and everywhere in which we interact and and face our world, whether that's the media, whether that's popular culture, whether that's our working environment, whether that's academia, is designed to see things in a particular way because they have been designed in some ways by people that have already missed the problem because they had the privilege to not see it. So why are we sending out a single story that for me would perpetuate that narrative that when it happens to white children they're innocent and actually we're not going to frame young black boys in that way. Take the child as the individual, you see them with empathy, separate from all the systems that impact them, but you work in a way that encourages the systems around them to see them the way you see them. Gino, thank you so much. I'm really excited to interview you. Can you just tell everyone your name? your current role, and just a brief background. Yeah, so my name's Gino Parker. I'm the National Programme Manager for the Disrupting Exploitation Programme. My background actually originally was just like youth worker. I was a practitioner, youth worker, and I worked in youth clubs in and around West London and managed services in and around sort of the Royal Bar of Kensington and Chelsea, mainly statutory-led services but designed and delivered lots of programmes around inclusion and really ensuring that young females were participating, young people with special needs and disabilities, and working with young boys actually that weren't accessing emotional wellbeing support, particularly young boys from diverse backgrounds. Before I came to the Children's Society, I was doing some very interesting work in hospitals, violence intervention, working with young people who'd been impacted by violence and managing services for them that were actually delivered by youth workers. So it was taking that real youth work approach but in the hospital setting in a really sort of nurturing way. 
So I've got a mixture of different experiences, I guess. I really wanted to come to this quote because you said to me that systems change is common sense youth work. When I shared that, a lot of people agreed with that, but they didn't understand what you meant. Mm-hmm. So it would be a really great opportunity if you could elaborate. What do you mean systems change is common sense youth work? My experience of youth work was always that you take the child as the individual, you see them with empathy, separate from all the systems that impact them, but you work in a way that encourages the systems around them to see them the way you see them. And that's what it does for me. So teachers can only see young people within their framework. They only have the capacity and the ability to work within the guidelines of teaching, right? Same for social workers, same for parents, same for anyone that has interaction with a young person, right? A youth worker and the youth work that I've only ever experienced meets that child. And if that child is in need, doesn't see the issue with the child, but wonders what's going on wider, and then will use common sense, practical approaches. Because in some way, the irony of them being considered informal and actually not really being considered a professional, right, gives them the ability to move in spaces where they don't seem threatening as a professional. People often feel threatened by teachers' presence and social workers' presence. But when you are a youth worker and you work with empathy, which they do intrinsically, that's the style of what youth work is. It's leading with empathy. It's seeing young people as individuals. It's why youth work is probably one of the only natural, cultural, competent professions in the sense that they don't see young people within their frames. They see young people without their frames. And then the youth work that I've always done and ever been about was always saying, what's going on for this child that we can't see? And how can we support others to be able to see it? So the example with the young boys in West London, what the project was initially wasn't a project around wellbeing. It was a project that was actually a partnership project with the police because the police were continuously having, if you like in inverted commas, problems with a particular group of young people Mm -hmm. in a particular area. And they'd actually give us lists of names of young people they knew would get arrested, for example, at Halloween or particular events around the year. And what we started to do was see those young people actually as separate from the way that the police saw them, as separate as being part of this list that was being identified as being troublemakers. And actually worked with those young people individually. And then when we did, and we built programs that was around them and their lifestyle and their well-being, we noticed that a lot of them were actually in crisis. And they were in crisis, and their behaviours and their attitudes of what was coming out, the behaviour was an indication of something being really wrong. And then we found out further things like, you know, that school were actually just considering their behaviour problematic and then continually asking them to step out. That social care couldn't engage when they needed to. The parents were saying that they were finding it really difficult to speak to their children because they were being challenging. When you start working in a way where you say, well, actually, maybe something else is going on. And then you look at the root causes. There was not a service that we could put on or that we could refer to that would see their needs as 15, 16, 17-year-old young boys from North Africa, from other parts of Africa, of ancestry origin, and parts of the Caribbean, and actually parts of Asia. Because very often the behaviours that they displayed weren't identified as being behaviours that were associated with emotional well-being, needing support, but actually associated with them being badly behaved. So what we did was we put on our own wellbeing support service and we used practitioners and facilitators that were people of colour, that were people that had some cultural competency around the the nuance of 
a young person from being raised in this country with parents from a different background and what that negotiation felt like. And when we started to work with the behaviour outside of what we were seeing for the child, but also working, doing some sessions for the parents, informing the schools around, you know, other support that might be available for that child, we saw a change. That was good old-fashioned youth work. That wasn't us saying, oh, great, we've got this list of young people from the police, let's just keep them out of trouble. That was us saying, well, what's going on? And that inquiry into systems change is what youth workers do on an individual level and sometimes on a group level. Mm. And if you, if anyone that's been in a youth club, works in a youth club, works as a youth worker in a school, they'll tell you the same thing in one way or another. But when they meet that child or that young person, whatever's going on, they will not just work with the child in isolation. They will try to support the child navigate their own environment, but not without trying to see how they can impact the environment at the same time. They're still working with the systems. Yes. It's interesting because a lot of youth workers have said to me they don't feel part of systems change or other parts of the organisation are doing systems change and they're not. But you're actually saying the opposite. You're saying they're actually at the heart yes. of systems change by default of their profession. And I love that you said what youth workers are doing are encouraging the systems around the young people to see them as you see them. So the yes. systems are seeing them as the problematic, challenging, troublesome child and you're trying to get the system to see them as child innocent needs support lacking in well-being you talked about how this youth work can ultimately lead to systems changing working with the young person you start to unpick actually they need support with housing they need support with addiction on a one-to-one basis can that then link to sort of larger systems change pieces. You're talking about very localised yeah. things that are happening maybe in a local hospital. Can that then easily turn to something on a national basis? Yeah, that's a really good question. I know that I would say that within youth services and within youth work culture, it continues to create change. Yeah. It continues. It's like a ripple effect yeah. that will then yeah. stay down. Within those that sort of get youth work already, you can create more systems change. The problem is, is though, reaching wider in some ways is much harder because people just don't understand it. People don't actually really fully understand youth work. And they often see youth workers as sort of almost babying the child. Like if I think of contact that I've had with the police years ago, they had really good relationships and building up work. And one of the biggest challenges wasn't the relationship between trying to support the police with the young person or the police with the community. Those were actually often really much easier. It was trying to break down the miscommunication of the youth worker's role to the police officers because the benefit of the child and the support of the child benefits everybody, including the adults in that situation. And often police took a while for them to realise that you're not there to work against them. And standing up for the child doesn't mean that you're, that you're, you're putting a police officer down. That actually, it's the reverse. Being able to support the child so that they are nurtured and supported and outgrow some of their risky behaviours, which are really normal and have been around from the beginning of time. We almost think that every new generation of young people invent risk and invent adolescent risk. And, and that includes risk around sexual health, it includes risk around drugs, it includes risks around tobacco and alcohol. It's like every 10 years that we forget that every generation before us have gone through this 
And then we almost lose all our tools in being able to understand how to process it. Like this mm-hmm. hasn't been, this is not an actual almost rite of passage. Yeah. And it's about us being there to support the process. Mm-hmm. Without systems change, the process continues to really disenfranchise the most marginalised. Yes. Because then you're allowed to be risky and take part in drugs if you go to a private school because somebody can help get that written off and it doesn't become a problem and by the time you've got to have gone to a particular university no one cares if you tried weed when you were 16 right but then if you're 16 and from a particular area and your parents haven't been to university and even actually if you're of a particular religious background etc the shame that's involved in that Mm -hmm. community-wise and society-wise means that you're not actually allowed to have that experience yeah for me that's the problem is that adolescence and risk and wanting to take part in negotiating that whole identity of what youth culture looks like for you mm. at 15 or 16 is permissible if you are a particular gender if you're yeah. if you're male you're allowed to be sexually curious yeah. if you're female god forbid yeah right you're from a particular space and your ancestry is different god forbid you try drugs and you you, you experiment with weed because then you're literally in the box in which people have seen you and yeah. and you're and everyone before you but if you are not in those spaces, then you feel free to it all put down to, oh, well, it's, that's your teenage years and that's yeah. okay and let's move on. And that's the power of youth work is that it allows you to say, no, actually, this is a child too. This is at the heart of every conversation I've had, young, personal, professional. At the heart of the conversation is the lens in which we view children, depending on culture, the gender, that the ethnicity of the child, the way we view that child drastically changes. Although we don't talk about intersectionality or cultural competency a lot with systems change. And yet it seems what we're really doing at the heart of it is addressing intersectionality and cultural competency. come to the children's society with this huge drive and momentum, starting this movement around sharing learning, around intersectionality and cultural competency. You've been promoting the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a scholar and writer on civil rights, critical race theory, black feminist legal theory, race, racism and the law. When I recently watched a video that you recommended, one quote really stood out to me from her is that she said that without frames that allow us to see how social problems impact all of the members of the target group, many will fall through the cracks of our movements. So we know that a major reason that systems do not work for people, for young people, is that discrimination and exclusion are baked into their design and execution. So for anyone that is a bit confused around intersectionality, the relevance of cultural competency, Can you tell us why cultural competency is so crucial for systems change? Yeah, because I think like Kimberly says, if you can't see a problem, you can't name a problem. Working within the cultural competency framework, not everybody likes that phrase, but I really like it because it works for me. Because it removes the issue from being just about a particular set of people working against another particular set of people which although is true, Mm. doesn't move us into a space where we're working together. So for me, cultural competency is about saying that actually we can all be part of the solution together because if you don't say it, if you don't explicitly ask in what way 
are we working that is then not being able to see that race is having an impact? Mm. You don't say it and have a look and say, wait, how is gender having an impact here? You won't see it. And you won't see it because we've just been designed not to see it because all Mm. our frames from everything that we touch around us and everywhere in which we interact and and face our world, whether that's the media, whether that's popular culture, whether that's Mm. our working environment, whether that's academia, it's designed to see things in a particular way because they have been designed in some ways by people that have already missed the problem because they had the privilege to not see it, right? But even the irony of Kimberly Crenshaw being rarely referenced when we talk about intersectionality, she is a black woman who has done a lot of work in the civil rights movements of black women in America. She's a black woman herself who came up with a theory, who coined the term, who has a rich history as to why the term is so relevant. She started the Say Her Name hashtag, which was specifically for black women who were murdered by the police. And then I have seen, I cannot tell you how many organisations I have seen pick up that phrase and throw it around as though it's the the answer to not working in an anti-discriminatory way that they've had previously, right? Or their answer to working, oh, we want to be anti-racist, so we're going to talk about intersectionality. And then when you ask them and you say, and it doesn't just exist within like the charity sector, I'm talking wider society. When you ask people and you say, yeah, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's theory is really great, and they'll ask you who she is. Mm. And there's a massive irony to me on that. And, and not and, and, and that in itself is is almost the problem. Like mm. People can even see her or ask, well, where did this come from? What's the root of it? I firmly believe that language is very, very, and, and language shapes our stories and stories like they help us interpret what we feel around us. That's true for children, young people and adults. If you're not connected to the language in which we tell the story, mm. how can you be authentic in that story? Whether you're white, whether you're of colour, whether you're a, a black female, whether you're a Kurdish refugee like myself, mm. how can you be connected to that story if you haven't understood the root cause mm. of a phrase that doesn't just mean something, it's a movement. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, and right. Yeah. And you and you are people have thrown it around as though it's the the cure without even it's almost like holding up the new penicillin and being like this is just gonna this is gonna help us it's gonna help our organization and we're gonna be able to move in this way because we now know this because it's like a trendy term we'll just say it and yeah without meaningfully applying it right and i only think you can really meaningfully apply it if you understand who she is and what she meant by that word mm-hmm. because then you then it will get lost yeah and then the irony was is that the whole point in which you which she was trying to make around black women and them not being framed within the social problem that was happening in the US yeah. will happen again and history will just repeat itself. It will keep happening. And because that will be quite comfortable for some people. So, And it's uh, I feel that at the heart of it is that in order to actually meaningfully apply this and use these frameworks, it would mean people in positions of power giving that power, which they don't want to. An example that really fits for me around what we're talking about is when I first started, we had already established a relationship with the police to trial a a brochure in custody suites so that young people could see it and have a a, a reference point of what exploitation was and maybe have an understanding that perhaps they were being exploited, give them some language and some tools to be able to frame their own problem. 
when the video was made, before I came, the main character that they had used was a white male. And I saw the video and I said, this doesn't work for me. And it it wasn't anybody's fault, but everybody who'd looked at that just saw a young, white, vulnerable boy acting, right? And talking about exploitation and his experiences of exploitation. I was like, this doesn't work for me because you're send- we're sending out a message and an image of a young white child being exploited and groomed and that this is his experience in the custody suite and we're letting young people watch this. Now, what we're saying is we're going to continue to allow to frame the problem as though when it happens to white children, they're innocent and they're being put into slavery and they're being exploited and they're being groomed. But yet, why do we never frame young black boys in that way? It's also being exploited. Yeah, so and even though it's one video, it's one image, mm-hmm. it can send a very powerful image mm-hmm. uh, message. Where I've struggled to fit in in places where I haven't been able to see myself. Yes. I've struggled to be able to be reflected back where I can't see myself in the reflection of what's going on. So why are we sending out a single story that for me would perpetuate that narrative? That when it happens to white children, they're innocent. And actually, we're not going to frame young black boys in that way. Now, I went back to the police and I said to them, I've got a problem with the way this was made. It's not, I'm not criticising. I'm just saying, I think we need to reshoot it. And they were like, oh, you know, I think people will get it. And I was like, no, my point is, is that you get it because you're having this conversation with me. I get it. My team get it. It's not that we don't all get it. It's that if we don't change the messaging, are children going to get it? And then... Right. And then they came back and they were like, okay, you know what, we've got some time, we can reshoot it. And then we reshot the video and we changed it to reflect a female of Asian origin, a white boy and a young black boy. Okay, so all were included in that video. All were included. And then what we did is for the parenting part that we included, we made sure that we had a black father. Yeah, being very present and talking yes. about. We made sure that we had a mother. You know, we, we made sure that we didn't just frame this then, also mm. from a gender point of view of saying that it's only mums that are there concerned and stressed and upset about. Yeah. But actually, fathers are very worried too. Mm. So it isn't just about the ethnicity. It's about not, not telling a story that can only be identified in, in a single lens. And that's what cultural competency did for that piece of work. Mm. But it's more than just saying, cultural competency is more than just saying this brochure that we're going to put in custody suites is great and we're going to put them in custody suites and we're going to get young people to see themselves and hopefully they'll start to identify and be able to ask for help if they need it and we've got services that we can signpost them to but then we looked wider and with the systems change manager we was having discussions about okay there are people in those custody suites right how do we get to them how do we get to the officers who, who actually you know want to do the right thing that where their training doesn't allow and where their own systems and processes that put them into a certain position doesn't allow for them to think outside of their own system. How do we then say, okay, there's no point just having a custody brochure that young people are going to look at. How do we impact the staff that also hands that brochure over to the child? Because systems change really. You can change processes and referral forms and create a brochure and you can put stuff out there. But if you don't have the right people that are connecting those things for young people, it's just a brochure. It's just a poster. It's just it's it doesn't actually. It's not. It's not something to take the change that right. we want. So then we went back to them and we said, "Look, actually, what we'd like to do is, we really believe that working in a I don't necessarily always like the term, but work for one of a better word, working in a trauma informed way. Because yes. I think people need to be trauma informed, not just professionals. Yeah, Every, everyone needs to. Yeah, 
working in a trauma-informed way might support your star right. to be able to support the environment in which that child is also watching that video. Yeah. To be able to at least give that officer the opportunity to have the opportunity to have the ability to see that child in a different way. And as actually a child that's probably been impacted by trauma if they've mm-hmm. been criminally exploited. And they said yes. And the London team at the moment, Abdi's started trauma-informed training oh my God, for, the, for the recruits this year who are going into custody suites. He's delivering an eight-week training program and mm-hmm. he's going to reach between 1,200 to 1,500 police officers just across the summer. That is so inspiring. And that just started with us going, right, at the point of custody is a really good point to see young people. That point can be very, very... If you're a child that's been exploited, if your child actually hasn't said yes, if you're in that space, that custody suite can be very, very, very intimidating. I mean, it's intimidating anyway, and it can be very scary, but actually putting the custody brochure out there to give young people the opportunity to see themselves and frame their problem and understand that it's not their fault what they're going through, it was the next step. But then being able to have the conversations around the story of the individual white boy and making it you know, more culturally competent as a video, allowed us to have better conversations with the mayor. And they were very open to it. And then it allowed us to say, actually, what we could also do is connect with the people who are going to be handing that brochure over to a child before they watch the video and take it from there. That's amazing that what started is someone might go, oh, no, I feel uncomfortable having that conversation. They're not going to get it. It's going to cause resistance. That was actually an opening into more systemic work and actually cultural changes to the police. Because we know, like, with systems change, to really get at the heart of the change, we need to change mindset. Yeah. I love that this is accompanied by trauma-informed training. I love that it's, it's more holistic in that yeah. way. It's like, no, the video in itself is not enough because there are professionals around the young people. Their attitudes are influencing them, exactly. the actual environment. I also just love that the video is not reinforcing the existing stereotypes. If we just had it as a young white male, then all the other children that are affected by this problem aren't included as the innocent child that needs to stop being criminalised. So I think it's just a fantastic example of what this sort of framework and that shift in our thinking can do for systems change. If we think about the ongoing sort of demonisation of sort of police officers and teachers and social workers, and then we put it into the context that these are just people and a living at the end of a month, mm-hmm. that have their own families, that have children, as Bernie Brown says, are doing the best they can. Yes. But if you want the best for them as people and colleagues and people that are taking a salary home that are probably struggling just yeah. like the rest of us, then you're going to want to have that difficult conversation. Care about them just as much as you care about the young people. Yeah. Then you have to, you have, to have that conversation almost. Mm, for them just as much. I love that you reference Brene Brown because in all of her talks about vulnerability and she encourages us, is us to say, imagine that they are doing the best that they can. It changes the way that you see that person. Absolutely. Like a lot of us have got, oh, the social worker doesn't care about the child. The police officer, they're just racist. We've got these existing biases ourselves. When we put it in that framework, like you said, we actually start humanising our partners tips for professionals that have said to me you know I really struggle when I'm in meetings with people in positions of power I feel really nervous with our partners have you got any other tips of working with partners in this way I think 
I'd offer the same advice that somebody gave me ages ago about confidence, and it's about understanding that if you are sure of who you are, right, and even on the days when you're not so sure, if you can be sure of who you are, you will get to a place where you will understand that what you bring is far more valuable to them than what they bring to you, and that they need you more than you need them. So in the spaces where you need to be quiet and not challenge, you need to do that sometimes okay. for the sake of having an impact. And that's not, you know me, I say it as it is, but it's about saying that if they don't have the ability to be able to see or work in a way that is conducive for themselves, right, and they're actually damaging themselves in the way that they work, then what makes you think they can do it for you? Taking acceptance to that's that is unfortunately how it's going to be sometimes. But knowing when to push when you have a gap. Yes. Because the truth will always be is that they'll need you more, far more than you need them. And that yeah. they will not give you any validation. Mm. And if you can reframe it in that way, that no one's power will get to you. Well, this is amazing piece of advice. And I just think a great way to end this interview that actually the power is within us. They've got the title and you think, oh God, what do I know? But actually... We do know, because we've worked with young people, we've worked with families, so it is about valuing what we have to bring to the table. Thank you so much. You're so Let me interview you. This has been amazing. Just so grateful for your advice and expertise. So welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Gino. Systems change must have a focus on equality and inclusion and needs to address discrimination. For more information about cultural competency and intersectionality, please check out the links in the description. And I'm going to end this episode with a quote from Kimberly Crenshaw herself. Intersectionality draws attention to invisibilities that exist in feminism, in anti-racism, in class politics. So obviously it takes a lot of work to consistently challenge ourselves to be attentive to aspects of power that we don't ourselves experience. Thanks for listening.